Hello, and welcome to Our Soul. This week, we're talking about Supreme Court cases, intersectionality, and some other stuff. So, here we go. The Supreme Court. It was only last week, but it feels like months ago, because we're living in COVID time, that Little Sisters versus Pennsylvania was announced. And again, John Roberts went back over to the other side of the sheepfold. He went back in with the conservatives to make sure that religious folk can discriminate against people and deny them health care. I'm going to try not to scream so loud, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that that's the upshot of what happened, right? Little Sisters, um, uh, lots lots of other names uh, um, on to the end of their official name. But, it, you know, the short version is Little Sisters v. Pennsylvania. Basically, Supreme Court decided that if you are a religious-affiliated organization with strongly held moral objections to, uh, you know, certain health care restrictions that are in the ACA, the Affordable Care Act you're allowed to just kind of ignore them and uh, move along. And the people who work for you don't have an expectation of having reproductive health options like birth control and lots of other stuff. So there's, that's literally just not fair and like not, mm. and I don't, I do not get it. Like why people would, why that would be allowed, you know, especially like it would be different if it was, a different, not good still, but different, if it was just, like, churches that were religious organizations, like, uh, organizations that would have, like, a religious moral that would cause them to change their health care, I would think it would, I would still think it's dumb, but it would be different if it was just churches. Like, but with it being, like, stores, like, like, Hobby Lobby or other places like Chick-fil-A like the like I don't know these are just places that I think of when yeah. I think of yeah and, <laughs> reli- and I, religious objections and I it would think... be different if it was just churches but like right. if I'm just trying to get a job at a craft store I shouldn't have to uh, like let go of my um reproductive health care I don't think that's true either of uh people who decide to work with in churches but Right, and Still. and I think there's <laughs> so there's reaching. also like you know as a parish pastor, right? I, you know, I'm I'm a parish minister, so the line between church and state and how that gets negotiated is often tricky. But let me tell you, like, I, I see a pretty clear line personally between I work for a church doing churchy church things, right? Like, I am a pastor. I am a even a church secretary, um, those kind of positions, I see a big difference between those kind of positions and we work as a part of a multi-million dollar non-profit organization that, um, you know, was founded by religious people a long while ago and is still controlled by religious people, but that is supposed to be providing care in the community or at least a basic minimum care for our employees. Like, I see a big difference between those two. And, you know, as a parish minister, again, uh, a big controversy that's been swirling around the last few weeks that I think is interesting that these two storms kind of coincide are the real concerns we have around churches accepting PPP money, right? This Paycheck Protection Program came out and gave uh, 
you know, over $3 billion of money directly to Roman Catholic churches, as well as other congregations. But the Roman Catholic number keeps getting reported in multiple news outlets. So, you know, I, I stick with that because it's also Roman Catholic nuns that uh, won this, this case in Little Sisters. So you're taking money from the federal government um, in PPP, the, the Paycheck Protection Program, as well as lots of other uh, tax exemptions, right? Where we have, uh, you know, churches have a, a broad tax exemption, not total tax exemption. We still pay payroll taxes and things like that. But, you know, they're benefiting from state money and they get to have their personal religious views forced on people who work for them. Like, I, I just don't see how if we're paying in tax money to your organization, I don't see how you all of a sudden get to take your organization's values and exclude what taxpayers have said needs to be included, right? Because the ACA is law because taxpayers voted for people that put a law in place that's still in place. And all the lawmakers that have come after have refused, albeit by slim majorities, they have refused to rescind those restrictions. So, like, okay, we've decided as a culture, as a society, this ought to be the law. And now the Supreme Court's like, well, you know, except for those people who really don't like it because they have a religious idea that something's different, right? So, again, you know, people with with a religious bent get to have their own way, even if that is not in the interest of the health of the community or the rights of other people. And I just don't see religious rights that way, right? No. I mean, I and, and I think part of it is I get insulated by our work here at Ohio RCRC that, you know, when we talk about religious values, we talk about religious values that build and encourage and heal and honor people's bodily autonomy and freedom of choice. And when organizations like Little Sisters of the Poor are talking about religious freedom, they mean the freedom to have their views imposed on other people who work for them. Uh, that's uh, that's really a big difference. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't think it's right. I ain't here for it. <laughs> so I don't remember who it was that I was having a conversation with, but we were talking about, uh, like, my personal morals and, like, how I see like moral decisions and we were talking in my class last week about um just like how morals are not necessarily like the law isn't about i remember okay so in my ethics of sex class um we talked about like briefly how the law isn't about like what is morally right but rather protecting um someone's right to choose to free choice so everyone has their own right to free choice um, and that's what the law is supposed to protect, your right to free choice. So the law is not supposed to be me deciding what is good for you. Um, so then you have to do that. The law should be uh, everybody has their own choice to decide what is good for them. And so I don't think that, like, regardless of, I could have, like, the most conservative uh, politically views about anyone but it is not my or about anything but it is not my job to put those rules on someone else um that's just like uh we were we were talking before before recording we were talking about um uh 
abuse victims and whether or not they have to forgive their abusers. And like, I have my own standard of my own experience, but that doesn't mean that I would ever put um, my own standard on someone else. That's just, it's not my, it's not my place right. to choose. It's right. not, um, it's not my right to decide like what somebody else does with their life. And, and that's, that's a level of social um, libertarianism that is, this kind of alternative to an authoritarian uh, moralistic rule and you know as as a minister um, who is in the the church of the historic pilgrims right I mean we we remember that coming over on the boat you know our people sought to really impose this kind of rigid horrendous morality and did it with genocide and a bunch of other uh, you know really horrendous uh, tactics that gave way to a broader appreciation, we thought, at least, for religious pluralism. The problem, though, is that that religious pluralist identity and the freedom to choose is what has now swung to the other direction in terms of everybody has the right to choose even if it harms other people. Because the decision in Little Sisters is rooted in their freedom to choose to mm -hmm. not do what is right by their employees and provide mm -hmm. all spectrum of healthcare, um, which I, I find is really fascinating because I don't know uh, how many other situations we would find aside from choice and particularly issues around abortion and contraception where the American public or the American courts would entertain this, would allow this. Can you imagine if we had a sect of people who decided that, you know what, we really we really don't think blood transfusions are good for us and we don't think they're good for our employees, so we don't want to cover any kind of serologic, um, you know, bloodborne um, programming or, um, you know, procedures for our employees. We want all of that excluded from any kind of health plan. And they wrote a health plan that specifically said, if you work for us, you can't get a blood transfusion if you need it. Like, I don't think anybody would think that that's okay, but that's it's what we have like now. Killing yeah. your employees. Yes, that's what we now have written into our laws, thanks to, you know, John Roberts <laughs> and his decision, you know, in, in Little Sisters v. Pennsylvania, that now you can, as a religious employer, decide to make the health of your employees worse, and there's nothing that state or federal governments can do about it. I mean, that that is definitely in need of a legislative solution, which is why, you know, going yeah. back to our previous podcast with the amazing Kelly Copeland, um, you know, one man is not a good plan. It's never a good plan. One man on a court, one man... Uh, voting in the Senate, one person making this decision back and forth about what's right and what's wrong, what gets kept and what gets lost, not a good call. And, uh, you know, I we cannot overestimate how, we cannot overestimate how important it is to maintain a level of choice around contraception. Because contraception is the place where um, you know, 90% of anti-abortion advocates say people should start when they're starting to complain about people having abortions who they don't like. 
Now, the reality is they're going to complain about people having abortions no matter what. And, you know, the moment uh, they get their way and uh, we lose Roe and abortions are officially outlawed, uh, they're going to complain about other things that people do with their bodies because it's not about the abortions. It's about the bodies. It's about control. It's about making sure that people don't have access to their own free choice. But they do that in the guise of free choice of religion and organizations, which is just you know, total BS. something that I've been thinking a lot about lately and um, something that this makes me think of is the idea that um, I've been listening to this podcast. Um, it's called Seen on Radio, and they just did a season on, it's called The Land That Never Has Been Yet. And so it's basically about how um, the history of America, you know, obviously has been built on the backs of um, black people, but also about how um, America has essentially from the beginning been a capitalistic state and um, how the democracy, quote unquote, that they created back in 1776 um, is not a true democracy because it's based in capitalism and um as we were talking about um organizations having free choice it's like the the organizations and the companies um have become people rather than the people themselves they have more democracy than than we do over our own lives and that's not fair and i don't think that's like rooted in any type of um moral especially a christian morality around um freedom you know when when you're when you're saying this uh, talking about democracy i hear like like every sophomorically educated white man in my life saying well you know america's not a democracy america's a republic right um, all those people, all those people are just like ringing in my ears right now. And the reality is, right, we are a republic that was set up primarily to benefit wealthy white interests. You know, mm -hmm. even, you know, when you take a look at some of the founding words uh, in, in these documents, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes and our sacred honor. Like it was all about money. It has been about money. This state, this nation state, has been founded in such a way that even though there were certainly people longing for certain levels of freedom for themselves, they were not longing for an egalitarian idea of freedom for everybody or collective liberation. They were longing for more for me. And that's what we have, have really developed right now. And that's, that's the sin we're having to reconcile in America today. That in the United States, more for me has given us less for everybody. It has given us less health. It has given us less freedom. It's going to give us less fortune here uh, pretty soon because we're at a place where this unsustainable uh, you know, capitalist movement is coming to a grinding halt under, you know, the reality of a very, very, very small virus that is not easily contained by organizations that don't like to act in other people's best interests, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're at a place right now where COVID is crippling our nation because we've decided that we don't want other people telling us what we should do, Right. It's it's basically little sisters uh, v Pennsylvania, just like blown amok. That I don't want anybody telling me what I have to do, and 
I need to get out there and make some money. We can't have the economy shut down for people's health because, you know, I need to make some money. All the while not understanding, yeah, dead people aren't going to make you any money. Mm -hmm. So I saw this thing on Twitter uh, today and also last night um, about, like, how with the reopening of schools, uh, like, Betsy DeVos said, like, oh, we'll only lose, like, 0.02% of students by opening. Like, if it's a 1% rate or whatever of death. Um, then we'll only lose this many students. And one of my friends, uh, who we went to the same high school, uh, tweeted, like, the the number of students that we would lose is around, like, 14,000, and then he, like, gave a specific number. Um, that's more than the people in my entire hometown. So what she's saying is that it's okay to lose my entire hometown of students. And, like, that's that's messed up. Everyone, like, if it let's if we're going off of the one percent, like, just ignore all the all the side illnesses. Like, if you survive this, the the things that you will have to carry for the rest of the, your life, the ways that you will be um, <laughs> damaged for the rest of your life, like physically, ignore all that. If we just lose one percent, I think that's like I think I read something like it's like three million people that we'd lose that's gonna mess up the economy anyway the economy is gonna be ruined regardless of what happens if we reopen it's gonna be ruined amen and right now if we stay closed i mean there's so many people without jobs um it's just it's just ruined and we need to just like buckle down and try to save our own lives if if we want to survive and if we take a look at the economy you know we we keep hearing i you know i'm playing devil's advocate there obviously but like we keep hearing people like betsy devos tell us well we can't just shut this down because if we if we do x and x is like all the measures that would contribute to a healthier society right now like if we do x then the economy is not going to survive that sounds like it's the economy's problem, right? Because if you economy, have built an economy... The economy is not a person. Right. If you have built an economy that cannot survive people being healthy, you've got a real problem. Yeah. Like, if the economy is not serving the people, then the economy has got to go. Yeah. So I think it'd be a great idea if the economy would just completely go under because then we can have a real conversation about how wealth sharing and access... Uh, is screwed up in America right now because if you have created an economy that cannot survive a few weeks of non-consumption there's a real problem going on and I think we all know in America we have an unsustainable system because the poor keep getting poor and the rich keep getting more yachts and uh, you know I I guarantee Betsy DeVos is not going hungry right so and you know she's not struggling to pay her her premiums on her health care. She's not struggling to get birth control. She's not you know having to worry about is she going to end up pregnant and needing abortive care. Uh, you know she she's not in that place because guess what? Rich people's kids are always going to be able to get birth control and abortions and any other reproductive health care they need. They're always going to have access to that. It's poor folks and marginalized folks. Yeah. That are going to have to bear the brunt of this, you know. Oh, we we got to open the economy and we got to keep this stuff moving. Ain't nigga. Um, so the thing that I wanted to Which go back note. to, and this will be a podcast yeah. exclusive for people who listen on. Like, podcast <laughs> exclusive. 
Um, but, uh, so when we were talking about, like, um, the history of America and stuff, it reminds me of all of the, um, in the last week I've seen a lot of, uh, criticism over Hamilton. And, uh, it's kind of, like, changed the way that I view Hamilton a bit, um, before. I just, like, saw it as a really good musical, but I think it's just because I, um, in my mind was already separating the, the, um, historical figures from the characters in the play, because they're different. They're absolutely different. And, um, like, just thinking about how, like, you were talking about how when, um, America was set up, you're right, it's not a democracy, it's a state that, like, has always been about money from the beginning. And so as I've been watching uh, Hamilton and reading some of the criticisms for Hamilton, um, I've been thinking a lot about how Hamilton really glosses over the fact that like the founding fathers that are so um, nicely represented as people who were like for democracy and who are like fighting for their freedoms, how they, you know, let slavery go for a long time and, you know, let all these little like social justice things that are based in like one's own freedom let that go for their entire lives like the the people who are represented in this in this musical like they either own slaves or let people own slaves so like we're but that gets totally glossed over and um one and like a lot of people who watch it like one of my fears is that white liberals will watch this uh this musical and think like oh all we have to do is just like work really hard and then get into the government and then change things that way but like honestly i don't i don't have hope for like internal change at this point like it is so messed up that we just need to like like redo the whole thing and i'm afraid that people will watch this and it's like kind of at the end it's just like um you know, kind of, uh, talking about, like, carrying on history and, like, who tells your story when you're gone and stuff like that, um, and I'm afraid that people will just leave it there and just think, oh, we need to vote, oh, we need to, um, you know, try to work for elections and stuff, but it's not just that. Uh, one of my friends posted a, an article about, like, uh, criticisms of Hamilton and, um, uh, I read it and as someone who really likes Hamilton I was like okay I want to like take this to heart I really want to think about this and I read it and I put in the comments like um I'm afraid that people will think it's just like one and done like you know uh a month of protests isn't going to solve our whole racist system that has been built from the beginning um one election in November is not going to solve the fact that like our our nation is essentially a police state and has been run by a fascist for the last four years. Um, like, none of these little things are just gonna fix it all. And I think, like, a lot of this, like, neoliberalism um, wants it just to be, like, fixed easily, and it's not going to be fixed easily. Even though um, I really like Hamilton, uh, it can make it seem too easy. You know, the first play is like a, like the war, which is, you know, I don't know. It doesn't, 
it's not even the full first half. It doesn't really emphasize, like, how hard it is to get freedom. And then the freedom that they're actually fighting for is not full freedom. And we need to fight for full freedom. Well, and, and I think part of the struggle is, you know, in Hamilton, the freedom that folk are fighting for are their freedoms. Yeah. Not freedom for everybody else. And, you know, I th- I think the emerging dichotomy, the emerging polarity in particularly liberal spaces and progressive spaces is between this this ideological we need a full reformation like everything needs to change everything needs to be thrown out and started over with between that and i see two other camps i see the far like uh, you know i i call them the corporate liberal i i don't i don't use neoliberal because i don't think we ever got to like neo i think we got to like there's corporate liberal and then there's old liberal right like corporate liberal folks are like oh but we just need a focus group right everybody you can sit everybody down get them some preference dials you know buy some cheetos it's gonna be all right like we're gonna we're gonna you know have a marketing campaign it's all gonna be good slap a rainbow on it slap a blm on all your packaging And, you know, 10 cents of every dollar goes to the charity. Do you want to round up at the register, right? Like, I mean, that that's essentially the, the meeting the moment that the corporate liberals want. Mm-hmm. For me, as an Appalachian, right, I'm in that third group. I'm in the old liberals group. Mm-hmm. And old liberals get real worried when people start talking about just throw the whole system out. Because every single time people have decided to throw out the old system, we have gotten a a crappier system. Mm -hmm. We have gotten the raw end of the deal each and every time. So when we start talking about radical social change, there are a lot of people who have fought for a lot of things that get real anxious. That's why you see labor unions really, really worried about the push for Medicare for All. Because they're like, but we really like the health care that we have fought really hard to get. Right? It's like it's like Hamilton. Like, I got mine, and I took a long while to try to get mine. And, and now I'm anxious because I don't know if, you know, we give this up. Are we going to get what you want, mm-hmm. or are we all going to lose everything we fought for? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, is the crux and the struggle right now that, you know, there are a lot of people who are not willing to risk not only for other people's freedom, but they're not willing to risk more for their own freedom because they can't see a future where this is any different. And that goes back to, like, the idea that this is not a real democracy. Like, not everyone is, like, represented. There's not people that are, like, you know, from, like, uh, Appalachia or from, like, the rural south or from, you know, the upstate new york like there's not there's not people from all these different areas that are actually fully being represented at the table and so i you know i understand why labor unions would be like i don't want to lose what's mine when i've worked so hard for it but then also um my my personal belief is that like when i have worked so hard for this thing that i got like this thing that is now mine I want it again for everyone else. I don't think that right. anyone should have to work right. as hard as I did to to get whatever it is, you know? Yeah. So, um, and I... But the only way to make sure that, like, you know, people are not being cut out 
is to make sure that we have a true democracy where the rich are not just like deciding everything for us and like paying people to say what they want to say and uh we actually have like you know a diverse representation of all the people who need different things you know i i understand that like my needs as a like midwestern uh person who lives in an urban area like my needs are way different than even your your needs as someone who lives in um a chillicothe in appalachia and very different from people who live in the south who have you know a totally different um experience than i do and it's also different from people who live in the west there are people who live in the whole middle part that a lot of people like to forget about like we all have different needs even in the in the um the healthcare realm if we're just talking about healthcare alone we all have different needs there and i feel like all of our needs need to be represented mm-hmm. in the laws that we pass but right now we don't have totally. a true democracy because corporates are included as people and corporations aren't people well, and and i yeah I, I, do, I do just want to point out, like, when you talk about that whole middle that everybody forgets, mm-hmm. we we are in that. Yeah. Like, we, yeah, we're, we're the middle. Oh. Like, we think that the middle of America starts at, like, the edge of where we are. No, if you talk to people in New York, we are the flyover states. We're the same thing as Nebraska. I mean, I've had, I've had multiple people, um, you know, in, in church and nonprofit circles just explain, like, everything from Philadelphia all the way over to San Francisco is flyover state. Like, that's just where it is because the majority of the nation lives in other places. I think part of the struggle, though, is we have worked so long in in liberal spaces, uh, you know, liberal progressive spaces, to organize the margins that we have we have organized the very edges. We've organized the razor edges. And it's those like middle margins of folk who are marginalized and forgotten that nobody has really, you know, taken the time to to work with and to organize. For me, you know, I I read uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail twice a year. I read it on Good Friday and I read it on Black Friday because I think it applies on both days, right? And Dr. King is most frustrated with the white moderates. But how often and how many times between Dr. King's death and today have we seen people trying to organize the white moderates? That's true. No, Nobody tries to organize white moderates, especially poor white moderates. Uh, everybody tries to, to get their votes and everybody tries to tell you what they're going to do in an election. But nobody sits down and has a conversation with the factory worker that's working 60 hours a week just to come home and get himself a beer and be able to relax with his kids, you know, or, you know, the the working mom who is, uh, you know, working all the time as a teacher, buying her own school supplies right now, getting ready to go back to COVID-laden classrooms, handing out masks to kids, right? Nobody asks these people, like, okay, so what would liberation look like for you? And the reality is most of them have decided, yeah, th- this is good enough. Yeah. This is good enough where we are because they've never been taught to dream for more. Mm-hmm. And when they are taught to dream, they're taught to dream for more and then blame the fact that they don't have their dream on somebody who is poor, on somebody who is black or brown, on somebody who is an immigrant, on somebody who has a disability, on all these marginalized people. They are taught 
to blame those folk. And I think, you know, in, in a long-term struggle movement, we've got to get all the marginalized folk together to realize that, no, really, you get to make your future. Yeah. Just the only reason... The, the ability to... I think we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast, but, like, the ability to imagine a future that is just good for yes. them. Not, not something yes. that somebody else chose. Not something that was designed before they had a chance to even be a part of it like something that is actually good where they don't have to work like more hours just to survive and like pay their mortgage where they would be able to like you know take time off to spend time with their kids or like take time off when a kid is sick um that that kind of and it's not my it's not my place to imagine what that would be for them but they need to imagine it for themselves and you're right, right i don't think i think That's like right. um most often, uh, like we uh, we see the the middle, like the middle group, <laughs> as like the the one that we're frustrated with, rather than yeah. one that like has the ability to be changed. Um, and I think like that's that's like a, a growing edge. Okay, so that's the totally. end of the podcast exclusive section. And then now we can go back to like inner intersectionality because we were talking about it before. So I feel like all of this calls for um, like a more intersectionality or an intersectional approach to to how we see justice. Um, you know, we're talking about how uh, decisions of healthcare by by corporations, you know, that affects um, black and brown people. Uh, especially in this um, this specific su- Supreme Court case, it especially affects um, people who are um, femme or trans, and it also um, affects class. So all of this means that we should we should have a more intersectional um, experience and a more intersectional way of going about things. And that that intersectionality is really a practice, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not like diversity quotients or you know like oh well you know we have arrived. Intersectionality is a practice and it is a relationship. It's it's a way that you show that you really are committed to a holistic solution that's not just for some people but can be representative for everybody i i think about um you know our electoral politics our electoral politics the gerrymandering that we experience here in ohio is explicitly anti-intersectional they want they want a single profile for a voter that they can tailor and understand and manipulate and the beauty of an intersectional approach is that intersectionality is by its definition really really hard uh to manipulate because it is not a predetermined outcome yeah right Inter- intersectional work isn't uh prefab right it's yeah. custom made yeah and yeah. um so just for for anyone listening who wants an official definition for intersectionality um the term intersectionality was coined by kimberly crenshaw and the official definition from the Oxford English Dictionary uh, is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender 
regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage, a theoretical approach based on such a premise. So that's the official definition of intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a black femme. Um, and you can look up some of her uh, talks and work around intersectionality. But I definitely think that uh, you're right. I mean, like, people don't want us to take an intersectional approach to how we try to, um, to get our justice. But our discrimination is definitely intersectional. I mean, um, just in this case, like I was just saying, there's race, class, and um, gender all in one. And so, you know, if the discrimination or the systems that are putting us down is, are intersectional, our approach to um, justice also needs to be intersectional. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's really important for me um, when people are first approaching the concept of intersectionality to make it clear to folk that this is not the oppression Olympics, right? Intersectionality does not mean you get a scorecard and you take two steps up if you are male and three steps back if you are black and four steps back if you are queer. And, you know, like trying to rate people against each other for like how oppressed are you or how hard has life been? All of that stuff misses the point that our liberation can be 100% inclusive yeah. every time. Yeah. Our liberation can can be built in such a way that no person is excluded, no person is denied. Um, and to focus then not on, well, how, how oppressed have I been? But rather to focus on how is my oppression informing the liberation I demand for others? Mm-hmm. You know, the liberation I demand for myself and for others, mm -hmm. um, that is so key because, I, you know, I think about a lot of the work that we do with Repro, um, there are many people who do not care about reproductive health rights and justice issues until they or their family members are directly impacted, and that is a damn shame. Mm -hmm. We have legislators in this state who don't care about abortion until their daughter needs one. That is a problem. We have to cultivate empathy and understanding cooperation and compassion among people in an intersectional way so that people can care about each other before they have personal problems that connect them, before they experience the roadblocks that the system has already set up for their friends and neighbors. Yeah, um, mm. this is also something that goes back to my ethics of sex class that I was talking about earlier. Um, last week we were talking about, we had watched a, um, a kind of foundational, um, talk about how to develop a, an ethic of sex. And, um, one of the points was talking about like relationality. And so one of the questions for our discussion was, do you need to know someone? Is it, is it necessary for you to know someone to have, um, empathy or to like, to be able to understand like their point of view and uh i don't believe you do like i don't i don't think it's essential for me to know someone who personally who's um you know who's had an abortion even though like now like every every like thing that i would think that you might need to know someone for i now know somebody <laughs> um but like but like i 
I cared about, like, queer people before I knew queer people or knew myself. Um, <clears throat> I cared about, like, access to reproductive health care before I knew anybody who, like, had to get an abortion. Um, I cared about, you know, I care, I care about domestic violence, um, survivors, even though I do not know anyone personally who has, or I don't know that I know anyone personally who has, um, survived domestic violence. I, I don't think it's an, an essential thing for me to have to know someone personally, um, but I think it is essential for us to develop a ethic in any circumstance that um, works to include the people who I may not know personally. Right, right. And, and I think, too, when we talk about empathy and compassion, um, like, empathy and compassion is not a binary state. Right. It's not I either have it or I don't. Right. You can have empathy and compassion and then have that grow more deeply within you once you have deeper connections with people. Right. The the other piece is, yeah, there are going to be a lot of folk who you do not have personally in your life, but whose experiences you are able to hear and seek out. You know, you, you think about this this process around empathy and compassion they're not a binary state right empathy and compassion grow with our awareness mm -hmm. so you might not be aware like you said of people in in your life who are uh, experiencing domestic violence but you know that people have had those experiences and you know the concern that's there now when you do get to hear someone's story and someone trusts you with uh you know that that moment whether they trust a community or you individually or anybody, when they when they give you that information, it grows your empathy and compassion so that you can do an even better job of advocating for people in their position. So I, I find it I find it frustrating because I think a lot of people think that empathy and compassion and, and an ethic of uh, compassionate movement is either well you have it or you don't, right? No, it's the fact that we're all trying to be more empathetic. We're all trying to be more understanding. And if we could seek understanding more than we seek the permanent solutions, right? Because I, I hear so many people, you know, when we talk about um, legislative agendas or we talk about programmatic agendas, their first question is, well, is that a lasting solution? And I find it so frustrating because it's like, well, I mean... If any solution uh, in in the greater movement for collective liberation is successful, it's going to position us to have a better view of what more of our problems are. So no, none of it's going to last. It's just going to keep propelling you toward greater freedom and greater liberation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in fact, if it is a successful solution, it can't last. Yeah. Right. If it's successful empathy, it can't stop there. It has to keep growing because if it doesn't grow, it's dead. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Um, it was really great talking to you about intersectionality and um, the ways that we need to approach injustice. And uh, we will be back in two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Great. Peace, love, and french fries, y'all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Thanks so much for joining us. And again, this has been Kelly Fox and Terry Williams for the Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Check us out at ohiorcrc.org slash podcast for an extended version of today's podcast and lots more.